Hello and welcome to Spore Module, the official RoboFungus podcast. This is episode 3, Fantasy, Mystic and Mundane. My name is Zach and I'll be your host today. I'm here today with Tobias Begley, author of Enchanter, the phenomenal first entry in a new progression fantasy series. We're here to talk about his use of magic and magic systems in his work. All right, Tobias, uh, how are you today? I'm doing all right. How about yourself? Oh, I'm surviving. You know, wintertime has just hit us here, and that brings with it its own mess of problems. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> um, wanted to talk to you today about your work, uh, about how you integrated magic into your book Enchanter. I picked it up on Audible and basically blasted through it in like two days because it was it was really a, a riveting listen i mean it was i thought it was pretty i thought it was really well done but your magic systems were pretty interesting to me the um and i don't want to give spoilers but you have a you have a system where um it's almost like a caste system where people have a an inborn preference almost certainly though there's technically nothing that would stop someone with a extremely low amount of aura from becoming a sorcerer mm -hmm. at the end of the day, the size of your aura doesn't change only the density through training. And if you have a small aura and you train constantly to make it very dense, you could be a sorcerer, but someone with a larger aura who put in the exact same amount of training is just going to have more power to throw around than you are. Okay. So they're more of a, so those classifications are more of a social construct than they are um, a hard limit. Yeah, I would, I would generally say so. And um, it's that aspect definitely does get explored in the diviner, which is book two. Um, but there are also practical limits, even if you're not using it for combat Mm -hmm. You know, if if you're just using it for a job application, let's say, maybe you're a mason and so you have an earth rune bond. If you can just do less than someone with a larger aura, you're probably going to get passed over when it comes hiring time. Okay. Now, um, to go a little more basic, I, out of curiosity, like, how did you, when, when you were sitting down to write, how did you decide, like, okay, I want magic to work this way? What was your process there? So I kind of developed the idea of three different main, quote-unquote, branches of magic very early on. Mm -hmm. Because I wanted to be able to have distinction that wasn't just, oh, I use fire, I use earth, I use water. So that, that definitely led to wanting to break things up. And I've always been a fan of more ritual type magic. If you've read the Dresden Files, uh, they mm -hmm. use thaumaturgy in addition to evocation. Um, that's always interested me. So that was kind of a natural extension was witchcraft to do more ritual magic and sorcery for more, you know, classic fireballs. And then druids kind of developed out of the idea of, well, there are 
in this world, these other planes of existence and magical creatures and beings that inhabit it. So there are definitely people who have focused on those things and that's where their own power base comes from. Okay. So I get, I, I think I'm, I think I'm picking up what you're putting down here. Um, so basically you've gotten, you, you were, you de- decided that you wanted a point a de- to develop a system where there are limits, but there are ways around those limits. Definitely. And then you also wanted uh, a distinct variety in the amount, in the types of magic without having anybody be cast into a stereotype basically. And I can, I can definitely see a lot of that, uh, in the writing, in the way you wrote it. Um, and in some of the descriptions that are given within the book. Yeah, that was definitely a goal of mine. Um, I, I didn't want to, like you said, fall into stereotypes, Mm -hmm. which a lot of general fantasy can be very hand wavy when it comes to magic. Yeah. I'm not a huge fan of that personally. Uh, magic doesn't need to be a science per se, but in my opinion, it does need to be internally consistent. Yes, very much so. And a lot of early fantasy just wasn't magic was just poof. It's magic. Magic made it work. But, um, and even today there are still a lot of series that are that way. Oh, definitely. There, there are quite a number that are, but you know, personal as a personal preference for me, I tend to look for series that specifically have a robust magic system because I read primarily fantasy uh, novels and books, and uh, I specifically look for authors who, like John Beers, Brandon Sanderson, who have these extremely robust systems of magic where it's very thought out. Everything is every you know there's there's a there's a balance and a counterbalance to everything. Definitely. I mean, Sanderson is a great example of that. Mm. I don't know if you've read Andrew Rowe's works, but... I haven't, but I'll check him out. Yes, he... Within sort of the subgenre of progression fantasy, while he didn't start the genre or anything like that, he did start a lot of the current communities, like the progression fantasy subreddit and the Facebook group. Mm -hmm. And... He's done a lot to really organize that, and he has an incredibly detailed and flushed out magic system. Okay, yeah, I'll definitely, I'll definitely take a look at it because I, I hadn't heard his name before. Progressional fantasy is always a, an absolute delight for anybody who hasn't delved into it. Progression fantasy, like y- you get to see a character or a trio of characters or a small group or whatever, you get to see them grow. As their experience changes, you know, grow in power, grow in knowledge, skill, experience. Like your main character, like your main character, who starts off um, very, who starts off, and I don't want to drop any spoilers or anything, but this is fairly early on. Um, they start off fairly reclu- reclusive with their own set of difficulties. Definitely. But then by the end, you know, you see real change having occurred to this person and the change feels organic and it's all, it's all very, very linked to the magic in that uh, narrative. Yes. Magic didn't make him overcome his issues, but it was a tool that he used to help. Magic didn't just solve his issues, his, um, his mental health issues, but it became a tool that he used to, it became a coping mechanism for him, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I would say it. most of the time it was a healthy coping mechanism. 
Most of the time, I would agree. With which, you know, I uh, I I, can't, I don't want to drop any plotline spoilers or anything. But there's, you know, any co- it's the same with anything. You know, there's there's merit and moderation. Absolutely, I use cooking as a coping mechanism, and that's relatively healthy. But you know, if I'm cooking these huge meals, spending a bunch of money, and eating way too much, that's not healthy. No. You know, or if you're uh, if you're setting aside, you know, if you're sitting down and you're like, yeah, I'm going to use this as my coping mechanism, and then you do nothing else, you set aside important obligations or important features of even the same thing. If you're setting aside important things just to indulge one aspect, that's not the healthiest. It's not horrible, but it's not the healthiest way of dealing with it. Like you said earlier, all things have to be in moderation. Yeah, in in a big way. But um, so when you were when you were writing the storyline out and you were kind of doing your world building, what was your process for bring for bringing that magic into the world? Like, what came first, the magic or the world? That's an excellent question, and I'd have to say the magic. Um, the 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 magic system. I drew a lot of inspiration even from real life, which I know saying real life magic has its own thing, but historically speaking, for example, um, like I looked at the idea of a voodoo doll. Turns out they're not really used in voodoo in the way that popular media portrays them. Um, And the idea of, you know, poke something here and it changes the person as a whole, that really actually comes more from um, the idea of sympathetic magic, as above, so below. And, you know, that's one of the cores that I built witchcraft around. I, I took some inspiration from the runic magic that a lot of the Norse peoples used to use, where language was both a language, but it was also magic language was power yes okay i see where you're going with that one um so your magic came first and then you kind of built the world to make sure that everything fit this the story seems to me to take place in if i were to parallel it to you know earth which is always a a troublesome issue when comparing fantasy to earth um but it seems like they're almost coming into victorian era where you're starting to see the advent of technology a little bit. That would be a reasonable comparison to make. Um, I will say the nation that the enchanter takes place in is not the most technologically advanced nation on the continent. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, Perus is rather isolationist and so that definitely slows the development of their technology, but I, I'd say a Victorian into Edwardian would be a pretty decent description of the magic throughout throughout Cray. Okay, so then uh, when you're implementing these, well, for for that nation, these budding new technologies, you you know, there's um, like there's pistols. Yes, there are dueling pistols in. Uh, in this in this world, which the whole with you know the whole accompanying set of rules and social biases about, um, 
how do you balance out like, okay, would this be a better technical would this be better solved technologically or magically? Like, how did you, how do you approach those, those situations? Because in a, in a world where there's a pistol, the pistol takes me, takes me 36 seconds to reload. And then I have to aim and fire. Whereas I might have to cast a spell, which could take me 38 seconds to get the incantation out. So in those situations, like how do you balance the merit like, how do you balance the right tool for the right job other than sheer cost? Because firearms would be horrendously expensive, if I remember correctly. For the average person, yes. Mm-hmm. Well, first of all, it's not a 100% clear divide. For example, to use a pistol, the, the black powder, the gunpowder that's used to fire the bullet they would probably describe the creation of that as alchemical, even though it doesn't directly involve needing to manipulate aura or infuse aura into anything the way most potions would. Mm-hmm. The, their viewpoint of the world is that is still just a particularly weird subset of alchemy. But when it comes to power-wise... Generally, my world's power ceiling isn't quite as high as a lot of series. You know, in Sanderson's novels, he has essentially deities that are all but like just shy of all powerful. Absolutely. Take the Mistborn series, for example. He is that, you know, in the Mistborn series throughout the primary the the primary trilogy um he's you know the the lord emperor he is a living god on um that world at least com- at least comparatively to the people there certainly you know and uh it's and, and you know and he's not he's by and large not the only person who does you know this person has mastered their magic system to an extent that it makes them uh nearly deified like there's there's a whole plethora of authors who do that who do oh yes definitely embrace that trope and it's i'm not saying that there's anything wrong with that but um not at all there are merits too to like your approach to having a lower power ceiling especially in a world that has deep social divides because if if you've already got that deep social divide throwing magic at it is only going to expand that divide to a horrific extent. Definitely. Um, and I mean, to, to look at the social issues, I, I don't think it would be really spoilery to say that for, for Perus, for the nation, the enchanter takes place in mm-hmm. magic is first and foremost, a tool that the rich and powerful use to keep themselves rich and powerful. Yes, I I can I can definitely see where they've ta- where you know that that construct has been reinforced by the nobility and it's it's one of those things and I was going to ask you about that next actually was um so you've got like the if you've got your protagonist and your protagonist discovers that hey, I have this magic and 
they were fortunate enough to be able to attend um, a school of learning, a, a higher education with that power. What happens to the people who manifest an aura? You know that they, they have their their quickening moment as it's used as is used as a, a fairly common trope. But they have they manifest their aura for the first time, but they don't have the means to pursue an actual education. What happens to those people? Because I I wanted to ask you about that. And if it gets revealed later on and it's a spoiler, then we can bypass it entirely. Some things are definitely spoilers, so uh, I will I will I will edit my own response. So, not a lie, but it isn't the whole truth either. Gotcha. To an extent, it depends on the circumstances in which the person awakens their aura, as well as do they happen to be the odd poor person out where they're poor, but they awaken just a massive aura. That does happen from time to time. In those sorts of cases where they show, you know, an incredible amount of potential for raw magical power, but don't have means, and that gets out, a lot of noble houses will will come at them with essentially an offer and a threat. You know, hey, come do XYZ. We'll even let you marry into the house. You've got this great potential. You can live such a high life. You can live a life of luxury. Uh, and if you want to keep living your peasant life and not participate in politics, um, well, we're going to do everything in our power to ensure that you wind up in trouble and are forced to conscript into the military and be under our thumb anyways. Okay. So, and yeah, there's, uh, trying to avoid spoilers, but there is a fair amount of, um, pressures like that, that are present even in book one. And I'm excited to see what, what's going to be coming up further on down the road. Certainly. And, and Evan feels a lot of those pressures and he's in a, you know, this is a super, super duper early spoiler. He is the adopted son of a tailor. Mm -hmm. So, you know, while he's certainly very far away from rich, Oldvari has been running a shop for a long time and they're comfortable, low middle class. Yeah. They're, they're not, you know, he's not as poor as he could be by any stretch. Yeah. He's not, he doesn't exist in a realm of poverty, but they, but you know, given his situation as an orphan in a time period such as that, um, he definitely might, uh, be aware of how it feels. Yes. Like just enough to appreciate what he has. Definitely. You know, something else, uh, speaking of Evan, there, you know, there's something else that I, uh, I, I liked having him not be, I just, you know, not be the Harry Potter of his, uh, uh, of his class, you know, have him not just be like, oh, wow, he's tremendously powerful, right? Just in raw potential, like having him be in that middling average ground to maybe slightly high, 
to where he still needs to work on his own merit. He can't just brute force and have things end up okay for him. Like he has to work. Having that, I think, was a really interesting choice and also a really useful uh, narrative device. Certainly. That's something I definitely wanted to have in there. I'm not saying by any means that, you know, having a chosen one is a bad thing. There are plenty of stories with a chosen hero who is stronger than everyone else that are excellent stories, but it is something I wanted to avoid in mine. Um, And I tried to build at least a couple moments in, in the first book and in the second book too, Mm. that are kind of um, aha moments for him where, you know, he's been butting his head at a problem in his way of thinking and his way of thinking, he's a relatively smart person. He, he can get along pretty far, but Mm-hmm. then it takes someone else's perspective to show him to kind of expand his worldview and expand the way he thinks. No, it's, it, I mean, it's any, it, that's the same with anything, you know, it's, there, there are quite a few examples of this all throughout fantasy, but like you self, you self learn something, right. But you're also learning bad habits or there might be some trick or some finesse that you don't learn because a mentor would have had to teach you that. And it ha- that happens all throughout almost every fantasy story that involves any amount of self-teaching. Definitely. And that is something I personally love to see. Um, so for my real job, even though I technically have two and write, I'm very busy. Mm-hmm. But for my real job, um, I'm doing solar thermal research with a with a professor at the university that I graduated from Mm -hmm. and you know that's something that i see in real life constantly because obviously there's a decent amount of coding involved and there are so many coders who are self-taught and are able to produce amazing things and then turn around and write 60 lines for something that could have been done in two Yes, because they didn't, you know, and that's where, you know, there there's resources in real life for stuff like that. Like you've got Stack Exchange where you're like, hey, I'm not sure if this is the most efficient or, hey, I can't get this to work. And people who have a lot more experience than you or might have seen it from a different perspective than you can say, well, why don't you try this? Yes. And it's th- those things are so important definitely to anything and in a magic system you know i mean it's you know they, you've got a person who is learning wild and they could go they could go a long long ways until you find until they find out that incantations exist that could drastically um improve the efficiency of their spell casting and they were getting by just on gumption and raw power so it's it's one of those things that is really interesting to see like the I guess the educational process as well, because the educational process isn't done as much in fantasy as it is in yours. Yes. And I, I tried to provide a couple of different styles of, of mentor without spoiling anything. There's definitely 
some who are more sink or swim, you know, just do this, <laughs> get it done. Then there are others who are more explanatory kind of guide you through it. Um, and there are also middle ground who try and, you know, do their best to reach out and connect to each student, but go through the curriculum that they have. And, you know, it's, it's really cool to see that in, in a series like that. Cause like I said, it's whenever you have the mentor in fantasy, it's almost always either uh, it's almost always either like, well, sink or swim or like, I want you to go do this sink or swim, figure it out. Or it's uh, like a hold your hand, guide you through the spell type situation. And sometimes it's the same mentor, but to see like in, in a, in a genre where there's that, you know, that, um, that binary system of education to see sort of that middling ground where you've got, you know, and you feel more like, like these are actual teachers. These aren't just like the wizard took on an apprentice. Definitely. It feels more like an educational institution than it does the, the normal for uh fantasy series, you know, that's, that's something I wanted because even in a fair amount of, novels that utilize a magical academy mm -hmm. a lot of the time it winds up more or less turning into there's one there's one maybe two professors that are you know actually useful to the main character yeah um that's that's definitely true of the vast majority of magical academy <laughs> like it's you know this this teacher is a specialist in this field. Well, that kind of that kind of vibes with the character. So that character is going to be locked in with that mentor at that point. It's not really a teacher anymore. It's a mentor at that point. Yeah. And while I don't, you know, entirely abandon that idea, I, I wanted to also keep the other teachers present and have it be clear that this is a magical academy. And, you know even if physical combat isn't really Evan's thing, he can still learn from that professor and he can still learn valuable lessons from the physical combat class. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, and it becomes apparent very early on. Uh, Evan has an anxiety disorder. I hope it's okay that I divulge that little spoiler. Definitely. Um, Evan has, uh, a moderate to severe anxiety disorder, um, specifically with uh, social situations. And the experience that you portray with Evan in that I felt was a really, well, one, it was, it was bold to be as honest as you were, I guess, about how that feels. But I also think that it was an incredibly useful tool to make the character, um, very relatable um, and to uh, I, I say tool to make, to get people to latch to the character, but that sounds a little manipulative versus just being honest about this character. I, that's, and I think that's the better term is just, you were very honest about how that character is. Yeah. And that is one thing where, you know, Evan is very different from me in a lot of ways, but that is something where I did, 
I've got a lot of anxiety. I'm not especially socially anxious, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm I'm able to take my own anxiety, and I know how it feels when I get anxious about things. So I can take my experiences and draw upon them to inspire me for, okay, so Evan is socially anxious. How's he going to react to this? Yeah. And I don't know. I, I felt that you kind of hit the nail on the head with it. Um, I'm glad. And uh, it was, I, I don't know. I just, it was one of those things where his, him as a character was extremely relatable. And the fact that you're writing it as a, um, as sort of a, as the journals of Evan, basically. Uh, it, correct me if I'm wrong there, but. You um, are, or, well, no, you're not. You are. You were correct. <laughs> um, but because you're writing it as a journal, there's not the the third person. You know, you don't have some of the the factors that a third person narrative would normally have where like you can see, oh, this person was sneaking up on him. It's like, I got hit in the back of the head and out like a light. And which leaves, yes. which leaves you know, that suspense like, well, what happened to him? What happened to him? What happened to him? And and also, you know, writing from that perspective really gives you a lot more of an in-depth look uh, into their thought process, their mental process. Third person right now, from what I've seen at least, seems to be the standard in fantasy. Yeah. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with it, but... I've always enjoyed a first-person narrative. See, and I I have difficulties with first-person narratives normally. Um, I have trouble putting myself into that I kind of I I do this I do this kind of space because I like I like to read the stories of these fictional characters about what happens to them, and I don't really like because I tend to imagine things very very strongly. And I don't like to imagine myself in those situations specifically. I like to read about them, but not be in them, you know, and perfectly valid yours, but your, you know, uh, your, your book, the enchanter was one of the few first person perspectives that I actually enjoy. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Yeah. It's, it's for anybody listening that hasn't checked it out. Um, it's available on audible and, uh, on audible and, is it? Uh, do you have it available on Amazon for print? Uh, not for print. I have it for ebook. For ebook, gotcha. So it's available on ebook and uh, on Audible as well, and um, everyone should definitely pick that up. But back on the the topic of magic, um, you know that first person perspective also helps to see like, okay, it's not just you know X person summons magic out of the ether it's okay. There's, you know, I, I have, I have to go through this process to cast this spell and that thought process happens and you get to see that, which is something that you don't see from a third person very often. Definitely. Um, I don't know if you, have you ever read the Dresden files? They're a very mm-hmm. popular urban fantasy. I have, uh, I'll be honest and say they're not my favorite. I prefer high fantasy over urban or low fantasy. But I have read them. Totally fair. There is a moment where 
and spoilers if someone's listening and is reading through the series <laughs> in Deadbeat, where Harry basically uses necromancy to create, you know, this giant T Rex Sue. And it's a really awesome moment. But I was so disappointed reading through it that we never really see the actual magic that goes into it. It's just one moment he's laying out a circle and then boom, it's done. Yeah. And, you know, the effect is really cool. And Jim Butcher did an amazing job writing that scene. And just it really gives you a sense of, you know, being a dinosaur. It is big and strong. It is a dinosaur. Yes. Yeah. They. It's definitely inter- an entertaining read, but to not see the process that goes into it is one of those things you're like, that was a missed opportunity. Definitely. At, at least to me. Yeah. Oh, it, it felt that way to me too. I agree. But you know, I'm sure there's plenty of people who are, would argue and froth at the mouth about, uh, about that. So I'm not going to go too far into it because it is a fantastic series. I mean, I'm not going to, I'm not going to bash it in any way. It's just not up my alley personally. Very fair. Um, but yes, that that is one thing where it it's using a first person narrative serves a dual purpose because I can show off uh, show off's not the right word, but I can show the magic system and magic mm-hmm. through his eyes. But I can also keep huge swaths of it obscured because it's not something that he researches or is interested in. So he doesn't know. Yeah. It's, you know, you know, and uh, Evan is one specific type of caster of spell, of spellcraft user or however you want to use the term. And he has friends that are other than uh, that are other types. And he would be, hard pressed to do magic the same way as they would. And not just because of, um, not just because of his capability as a magic user, but also, um, you know, lim- the, lim- the almost the metaphysical limitation of a power cap. Certainly he, he does not have the raw power to be a, a, a combat mage in the traditional you know, throwing fireballs, erect a force shield, send out a swarm of magic missiles. Mm-hmm. Sense of the word. So, sort of out of the uh, out of ballpark here, but when you were when you were writing, like, what were your chief inspirations when you were going through and creating the world and the characters and and just writing the story, putting it all together? Well, John was a huge inspiration. Um, he was. He was one of the people that really got me back into reading because when I was young, I read everything. Mm -hmm. And then I hit college and I was having to work more and read more like scientific papers and that sort of stuff. And I didn't read for fun. And then I think I was in my senior year. When um, I stumbled across John's books and the Mage Errant series, and that really helped get me back into reading. So he was a huge inspiration. 
Um, Andrew Rose books, Arcane Ascension was a huge inspiration. Um, we didn't really touch on the queer aspect of my books much, but his books feature a, an asexual, but not a romantic main character, which is not something you see often. No, it's really not. And you know, it's, I, I was so focused on trying to think about the magic system that I didn't even touch on the romance. Um, but you know, having, um, uh, Evan is a, I want to say openly, but as openly as he can be societally, I guess. That's a good way to put it. Yeah, he he is as societally open as he can be as a gay man. And I thought, because it didn't even dawn on me, um, it, it didn't even like dawn on me that that might be something until he meets um, the chief love interest of the story. <laughs> and then I was just like, ah, okay. And I'm glad that it was treated as casually as it was, because there's a lot of times when authors try to incorporate, um, you know, the, the LGBTQ plus community into their story, they have a tendency to overdo it a little bit. Definitely. And I'm glad it was, I'm glad it was treated from Evan's perspective as sort of a casual thing like, Oh, he's cute. And that was that, that, you know, there, there wasn't, lengthy explanations about why they were cute. It's just, wow, he's cute. Definitely. That is one thing where um, I am a gay guy. Mm -hmm. I personally, um, I mean, I've had friends describe me as like a stealth bomber because I fly under the gaydar. <laughs> um, I, I mean, I had an experience at work a couple months ago where I mentioned my boyfriend and some, one of the people I work with jumped and I was like, what? And he's like, I didn't know you were gay. And I'm like, I've mentioned my boyfriend more than once. <laughs> and on, on the idea of, you know, it needs to be a big deal versus it needs to be casual. There is some divide there, especially with, you know, older members of the LGBTQ plus community versus younger, a lot of older feel, you know, if it's not a big deal, if it's not, you know, causing issues, then it's not true to life. Whereas a lot of younger like it to be casual. Mm -hmm. I personally fall into the casual space as well. I feel like normalizing is going to be the most positive thing in the long run. Yeah. But, and not to say that there's not merit in either direction for either point. Everyone has their preferences. Everyone has Certainly. their ideals and everyone's entitled to those ideals. Um, I just, I personally appreciated how casual you were about it because it felt more like, um, it felt more like an internal thought, you know, cause it's his, it's their journal, it's their diary. It's this, the, it's their, their memoirs. These are how they think and how they feel. And especially with first person perspective, that's so important to get that down because if you start going in excruciating detail on one instance, you have to continue doing that because then you're setting a trend, you're setting a behavior pattern um, versus like, just be like, wow, he's really cute. 
or man, this tastes horrible. Like that's how people think. That's how people are. And there are some people that will go into excruciating detail trying to remember things. But by and large, it's not the norm. <laughs> yes. But, and I'm sure there's a whole bunch of psychology that can be got into with a lot of that stuff, but. I am not a psychologist. I am I'm sure either. there is. Um. <laughs> I am. And I'm not going to, I'm not going to even try and psychoanalyze anything because I'm not qualified to do that. Very fair. <laughs> um, I'm sorry if I went off on a tangent there. Oh, um, no worries. Because, uh, you know, I just, it just dawned on me that I forgot to mention that. And that was one thing that I wanted to, to mention because it was something that I thought was kind of refreshing from the fantasy genre. I'm glad it's, it's definitely something I wanted to incorporate is this casual element. Yeah. And I can definitely see why, you know, I mean, it's they're human and parahuman. They're, they're human and human like, um, and they're going to have emotions. They're going to have relationships. They're going to have feelings to just ignore those. And you fall into what the fantasy from the eighties was, you know, from the seventies and eighties to avoid those relationships, to avoid those interpersonal relationships. You know, you go back that, that goes back into, and not to say there's anything wrong with the old fantasy. I mean, you got to respect where fantasy came from to appreciate where it is today. Definitely. I mean, what, what would high fantasy be without the Dragonlance series? You know, I loved <laughs> those as a kid. I did too. I, I had the, uh, I got for Christmas one year, the, the trilogy book, like the massive dictionary esque, uh, dragons yes. of autumn, winter and summer, tw summer twilight. And I just devoured that thing. And then I started going to the thrift stores and picking up like the individual novels here and there. And it was just, it was one of those things. That's how I was introduced to um, just going through and looking for fantasy novels at the thrift stores was how I was introduced to um, uh, Drizzt Duerden as a character. It was how, and it was how I was introduced. And through that, I then was introduced to D and D and a whole, a whole realm. Ironically, um, I actually had those two things happen separately. I, I read the Dragonlance books. I never read Drizzt until I was older, but when I was young, I read the Dragonlance novels. I think I read a few Forgotten Realms novels. Mm -hmm. And then later, God, like 10 years ago, roughly, uh, when I was in high school, I started, I got interested in D&D. &D. I was reading through it and I was like, man, this all feels really familiar. <laughs> yeah, I, I never made the connection that um, Dragonlance was D&D &D until much later. And I think I was actually playing at a table because I didn't even start playing D&D &D until I was 18 or 19. And uh, uh, a friend of mine who had been playing for much longer than I had, he'd been playing since the 80s. Um, he had mentioned, he's like, oh yeah, I remember when, um, when Dragonlance came out and everybody wanted to, to model their campaigns around how Dragonlance was when it was the, you know, they had it backwards. Dragonlance was modeled how D and D was. And, uh, which D and D was definitely another inspiration of mine. I felt, I felt 
as much. I just didn't want to ask because I feel like every fantasy author gets asked that. It's hard for... I'm sure there are some fantasy authors who have never touched D&D, never have no knowledge of it, and still wrote a fantasy novel. I'm sure they exist. Yeah. But I... Most of the ones I know, especially in regards to high fantasy, Mm -hmm. at least have drawn some inspiration from D&D. Yeah, I would agree. The ones I would say that probably haven't are some of the older authors, like before, well, before he had, before he passed, but Robert Jordan, um, I'm fairly certain he didn't play D&D. Certainly. Or, or like Mercedes Lackey. Yeah. Um, and but you do tend to see that and you know and their series tend to have a certain feel to it those those series that are considered high fantasy do tend to have more a i don't know a more mythical feel to it i guess i can definitely see that rather than being cuz like if you look at robert jordan the wheel of time series right he's got all the elements of fantasy he has these intricate magic systems he has um fantastical creatures he has Strange, he has, you know, a land that is not Earth, which I, you know, and somebody's going to say something like, well, actually, there are theories that it's post-apocalyptic, but I'm not going to go into them because it's a fantasy book. (laughs) That's a whole other conversation. There are a lot of series where you can say, well, there's a theory that it's post-apocalyptic. Yeah. It's like, not everything is the Shannara Chronicles. We don't. Not everything is the post-apocalypse. It it might be. I don't know. I'm not the expert. I didn't write the books and I'm not a, I'm not Brandon. I'm not Robert Jordan. Even if it is post-apocalyptic, it is so far removed from modern earth. Yes. That it might as well be an entirely different world. Yep. I mean, it, I mean, it, it truly is. I mean, you look at the, you look at the map of the continent in in that book and it's not even close. But it's, you know, it's one of those things that you look at those and there's a mythical quality to it. The things that they do are so enormous in magnitude and the way that it's written that just it feels more like um, a mythology story than it does um, an in-depth fantasy narrative, which is something that I feel is a big difference between pure high fantasy and progression fantasy. Because I feel like with progression fantasy, you're starting at, I mean, and high fantasy, you might be starting at that lowest level too, but the hero's journey is so much faster. Definitely. Um, I mean, Cradle is the poster boy of progression fantasy. Fair. and it, it, It's fair that that's the poster boy. <laughs> oh, definitely. It's an incredibly well-written series. And, mm-hmm. you know, I've only spoken to Will twice, but he's... He seems like a great guy from from the conversations I've had. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, in in Cradle, in classical fantasy, the first three Cradle books would probably be one book in classic high fantasy. Yeah, it would be you know it'd be a twelve hundred page book, but that would be just fine. But to touch on the older ones that don't draw inspiration from D&D, 
Mm-hmm. I think it's either that way where, you know, you have like the channelers in the wheel of time. Yeah. Or it's the total opposite where this is technically high fantasy, but magic is either so rare or so low that it's all but non-existent. Like Lord of the Rings. Like Lord of the Rings, yes. Yep. I was thinking that too. I was like, Lord of the Rings was, to me, it felt like more of a love letter to the fantasy ideal than it was telling a a fantasy narrative. Definitely. If it had been written today, Gandalf probably would have been the main character. Yeah. Yeah, I could see that. Or... um. The ring would the ring would have granted Frodo more power. Yes. Yeah. Perhaps he would have learned to channel it, but then have to resist the influence more actively. Oh yeah, and there's a million and five what ifs in all of that. Oh, certainly. But and you know, and that's a writing style you just don't see anymore. And that's I I, I have I have two feelings about that. It's a good thing and it's a bad thing. It's a good thing because. I feel that the genre has come a long way from the from that type of storytelling and to step backwards would be a regression but at the same time those stories are so like are so ingrained in the fantasy genre that it's almost a shame to not try and emulate at least to some extent you know what I mean I think for example you are going to be very, very hard-pressed to find a dwarf that draws no inspiration from Gimli. Yeah, that is a thousand percent true. <laughs> um, you're, you're going to be hard-pressed to find elves that don't draw some inspiration from either Legolas or Elrond. Yep. No, I, the, the Tolkien elf paved the way for what all modern fantasy elves, the archetype for him, the archetype for modern fantasy elves is a Tolkien elf. Like it just, the graceful curves, the grown architecture, that was something that wasn't really seen from elves before that. And there was, you know, a lot of that also buys into the, um, like the Irish fae myths. Yeah, he he seemed to kind of blend the Twatha Dadanan and the Svartolves. Mm-hmm. And it it worked. It worked so it well worked that very it just well, yes. It just never changed. <laughs> but um and there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, l- there's so many series out there that we wouldn't have if not for that. I definitely like it when people try to shake it up, but there's also there's merit in pulling things straight. Yeah. There's, there's merit in the familiarity of it yes. because then you can spend more time on your actual narrative versus trying to explain the intricacies of this entirely new form of elf. I think about the only major difference that I made from my elves and Tolkien's elves was I made their fey connection a little more obvious and I made their lifespan tap out at around 400 years because... Mm. Timeline-wise, it's always a bit wonky in fantasy when it's like, this strange event happened 4,000 years ago. And then elves are like, oh, my great-grandpa was alive then. Yeah, or my dad knew that guy. Yeah. Like, like I get that it's a more recent 
historical event for you, but you still need some sense of aging. They can't be immortal like the Tolkien elves were. Um, or if they are, that needs to be present. Like in Tolkien, you can, with the exception of Legolas, who is the exception, yeah. all of the elves are just really tired. They're worn. But yeah, I definitely agree that it can be fun to shake things up, but there's also merit in the familiar ground in playing tropes straight. And that goes for all things, not just elves. If you're going to subvert a trope, there needs to be a reason that isn't just, I want to subvert the trope. Because a well-done trope, in my opinion, is a thousand times better than a poorly done subversion. I would 100% agree with that. Because a tro- to me, a well-done trope is something that people might not even recognize it as a trope um, until they're already invested. Whereas a subversion of that trope, people are immediately going to be like, that's different and I don't know if I like it. And it'll stand out to them, which detracts from the notes that you want them to follow. And there's not, there seems to be this idea, at least from what I've noticed, that if readers can guess where the story is going, that's somehow a bad story. And I don't think that's true, personally. See, yeah, and I... I don't know, because there's there's quite a few novels that I've read over the years that were very predictable, and I still finished them because the story was entertaining. It was engaging. And I think and there are some people that are like, if they can get if they guess the ending, they'll skip ahead and find out if they were right. Like and, and that's that for those people, good for you. I just don't prefer to do that. Um, but it's one of those things where it's, you know, to me it's more about the journey, not the destination. Very fair. So, like, if you know the destination, great. But you still sat through and watched the director's cut of Lord of the Rings, even though you knew what the destination was going to be. So, you know, it goes both ways. Definitely. But anyway, I think we should probably wrap it up here before we get to ranting about more tangents. Um, I really appreciate you taking the time and coming on here with me. It's Absolutely. I appreciate the invite. We should definitely tell everybody um, where you, they can find your work at. Yes. So I have The Enchanter up on Amazon and Audible. Um, the Diviner, book two of Evan's story, is coming out soon. I don't have a specific mm-hmm. date. It's sitting with the editor and the topographer right now. So just kind of waiting to hear back from them. But they'll be out on Audible and... Mm-hmm. They'll be out on Amazon for ebook first, then out on Audible a little bit later. Uh, and I do have a Patreon. Right now, it's just a preview of The Diviner. Once The Diviner comes out, I'm going to be starting a interactive project on there where I'm going to be writing in a totally new world, new characters, and I'm going to include things like votes where the patrons can vote oh, that's on awesome. choices for the main character to make and that sort of stuff. Okay. All right. Well, definitely. Um, if you're listening to this, you should definitely pick up Enchanter. And I know I'm going to be picking up Diviner whenever it comes out. And then uh, definitely check out uh, Tobias's Patreon because you're going to get previews into 
the next book as well as into that interactive story before anybody else is going to get to hear about it, which will be very, very interesting. Again, <laughs> I can go back and forth with, th- with thank yous here. Uh, I really appreciate you coming on. And uh, thank you again for the invitation. <laughs>